with me through Galatians tonight, uh, kind of a story of how providence um, works out and probably for everybody, but certainly in my life, but um, spent two messages in going back over uh, what I've thought about many years is our, uh, what it means to be in Christ, um, that union with Christ, the intimacy we have with Christ, uh, how Christ works in us through that. And as I was reading, uh, reading through Galatians, I got to the fruit of the spirit. And it's just interesting to me uh, how, how the backdrop of our union with Christ, our, our position in Christ, and how it related to how I read Galatians, particularly in the fruit, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, I'll read uh, all of chapter 5, uh, but we'll be looking at several passages in there and then also uh, a, a brief passage in John. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Uh, let me just pause here. Um, all the words of Scripture are inspired by God. When I was reading this passage of Scripture, it was just like every single sentence was just saturated uh, with this glorious truth. So, so hear them that way. Verse 3, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, 
let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful and challenging in one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. He goes on to speak about bearing one another's burdens as well. Uh, what struck me about uh, that passage in Galatians uh, was, was how it related to what I preached the last two Sundays in regards to our union with Christ. Uh, if you remember in the beginning of Galatians, uh, Paul writes to them in verse 6, chapter 1, I am amazed, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which really is not, not, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul is, Paul is writing here to Galatians uh, who had come to confess Christ or come to believe in Jesus Christ. And then there was a group of what some people have called Judaizers, whether they were professing Jews who were professing Christ or whether they were genuinely, genuinely uh, Christians, but yet those who had carried along with them some of the traditions of the law and they had kind of commingled their understanding of law and Christianity. But whatever the case, they were coming to these Gentile believers and they were imposing on them, particularly circumcision, but probably more generally, that was just a, that was just a threshold by which they might bring other law to bear in the Christian's life. As a means, this is important, as a part of their justification. And that's what the whole book of Galatians is, is Paul establishing justification by faith. And he says to them, like I said in verse 6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Notice in verse 9, he says, as we have said before, so I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. So, so Paul is defending now this gospel of grace that he has preached to them. They have come to believe in Jesus Christ. They are justified by faith in Christ. That is the, that is the singular element of their justification. And then you had some people coming along that were saying, well, well, that's true, but you also need to be circumcised. And so that's what Paul is pushing back again. I wrote this in my notes. Paul is writing to Christians in Galatia who had been influenced by the teaching of what many have called Judaizers, uh, as I've already said, Jewish professors of Christ, perhaps who were pressing Gentile believers to be circumcised. Perhaps implying that Christianity was, in some sense, an extension of Judaism. But clearly, by Paul's writing, an influence which amounted to an aid, that was an influence, he says, which amounted to an alien gospel, an, influ an influence that had the potential of drawing these Galatians away from a gospel of grace to a new gospel, quote, unquote, a distorted gospel that commended, uh, that, that commingled uh, co grace and works or law and thereby diminishing the glory of Christ in their justification. I think that's the heart of the issue. When you, when you bring that, when you bring that in circumcision, or if you want to push it on out into the law, when you bring that in as a, as an instrumental or a means of justification, and I, I think in some ways even sanctification, but certainly justification, you are commingling now law and grace, and by doing so, you're diminishing grace, which diminishes Christ. 
And I think that's what he's getting there. So in, in, in Galatians 5, 1, as he's closing out this letter, he says that phrase that I've already uh, quoted in my reading in verse five, chapter 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. It was for freedom that he set us free. So there is a setting us free to the end that we be free. <laughs> there is a freedom into which we live, we are, we are introduced by his freeing us. There is a justification, which is the freeing, and then there is, a, there, is a, there is an environment in that justification in which we live, which is freedom. It was for that that I set you free. It was for freedom that I set you free. That's what he's driving home in the, in the close of this letter. And he says to them in that verse, so therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. What struck me was the word again. The implication is you once wear, wore a yoke of slavery. And you've been set free now to live in this environment of freedom and don't subject yourself again to a yoke to bring you into bondage. And in the context of the letter, that yoke that he's speaking of, to me, must be a, bear, a bringing in of the law and a commingling of law and, and grace as a, not only a means of justification, but also a means of sanctification, commingling those two things together as though you're gaining some acceptance with God by law keeping once you're born again. And if you do that, I think you're subjecting yourself again to a yoke of slavery. You're free to be free. Man, that, I don't know how, how I can explain to you how that Galatians particularly, but this verse particularly struck me as an unbeliever. When I was liberated from the yoke of sin, as it were, and set free, I, I, I understood from this that I am to live now in that same freedom. I didn't set you free to take again to, take again to yourself another yoke. I set you free to be free. Now live free. Live free. Now don't hear me saying live disregarding God's law. The law has a, has a function in the life of one who is set free. It, it clearly describes God's righteousness. It, it lays down principles. There are principles involved in law that instruct the believer. So it's instrumental in, to some degree in our sanctification as an instruction, as an instructive for us in regards to God's character. But it is not a means by which we are justified or nor is it a means by which we are sanctified. That's grace. That's grace. And if you exclude grace and you enter in law and you commingle the two, you're diminishing grace and you're subjecting yourself to a yoke. You might as well put it back on. The moment you decide that law is to be governing and you and making you acceptable to Christ or to God, then you're bearing the yoke again because now you're, you're putting in your works, as it were, your law keeping along with grace as a means of justification and your sanctification. We are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. That's your freedom. Be free. Walk in freedom. So he closes out this letter with that as well. But in Galatians 5, 13, he speaks of the potential misuse of that freedom. Verse 15, or excuse me, verse 
uh, 13, for you were called to freedom, brethren. So you've been set free. It was for, for freedom that Christ set us free. So in that setting us free, we were called to freedom. That's what we're called to live in, in freedom. And that's a glorious truth and we ought to applaud. But then he says, only do not turn your freedom now into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. First Peter 2, 16 calls it, uh, calls it a, a cloak or a, a cloak for malice. So don't, and that's, that's really instructive, particularly taking Peter, what Peter's saying into mind as well. So, so there must be some potential that me who has been set free for freedom might somehow deviate and now use my freedom as a cloak for, for malice. Well, malice toward who? <laughs> me? I'm not self-malicious. I might use my freedom. I might pervert that freedom and use it as a covering now uh, for malice. And I'm assuming that would be malice directed outwardly since we're not self-malicious. I don't think that's what he means here. So there's a warning here that you might, you might be drawn or you might be, have a propensity perhaps in our fleshliness to, to subvert or to pervert uh, freedom and make it something that it's not. And so there's a stern warning there. And he gives the alternative to that in verse 13 as well. Don't use your freedom as a cloak for maliciousness or to give the flesh an opportunity, but through love serve one another. For the whole law was fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you have two things there. Don't use your, three things, don't use your freedom to cloak maliciousness. And secondly, alternatively, Use your freedom to serve lovingly. That's, that's what you're freed for, to serve lovingly. Both of those things are indicated outwardly. I'm to be loving you, loving my brethren, serving you, serving my brethren. I'm to be loving and serving. That's a, that's a proper exercise of your freedom. Not, not Your freedom is not so that you can use it to disguise or to mask what is a maliciousness towards others or even a, an occasion to gratify your flesh. And see, to me, that's why it's so important that Paul's pushing back against what they were doing. Because they were taking people who, who had grasped this freedom and they were coming into them and saying, well, that's wonderful that you've accepted Christ and received Christ, but you understand you need to be circumcised as well, Right? And so, they, and so they were prone, after all, these are Jews. These are, Jesus was a Jew, and these are Jews, so perhaps they've got a, a better idea here. So these Gentiles might likely embrace circumcision now as, a, as commingled now with their faith in Christ. And in doing so, that provides, I think, in many ways, an opportunity for the flesh. Or it may even provide for maliciousness in regards to viewing others who hadn't been circumcised. I'm a Christian. I've, I've come to Jesus Christ and, and I've been circumcised. 
And there's another believer who's come to Christ, yet he's not yielded or subjected himself to circumcision. So we start, we start dividing ourselves up and splitting ourselves off. Well, I'm a circumcised Christian and you're not a circumcised Christian. Maliciousness, occasion for the flesh. That's what happens when you mix works and grace. When you mix law and grace as a means of justification. You begin to take to yourself now, even if it's law in large, your adherence to the law as commingled with grace in regards to your standing before God. And when that happens, you are prone to become malicious and judgmental of everybody else. That's exactly what legalism is. It's, it's, it's the idea that I am justified by means of law keeping. And if you bring that into the ideal of grace, then you're commingling grace and works. And so by doing so, you're diminishing the value of grace. And I, I would submit the glory of Christ. That's serious business. In fact, I think that's why Paul gives this warning in verse 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. So when you, when you bring in this, this adherence to law as a means of your justification and of your status and standing before God, and you begin to rank each other according to how well you're proceeding with that, what happens is you do, do, you do exactly this. In the church, we start biting one another. Biting. Uh, I, I love the, uh, the imagery here. Biting and devouring. Eating on one another. Feeding on one another. Ranking ourselves in status according to our law keeping, all the while claiming grace. The cloak of freedom. And that's exactly what happens. We start biting at one another. I, I remember when we were kids... Mom would take us, I don't remember who she was, but we'd go visit her occasionally, and she had the most aggravating dog you ever seen in your life. This thing wasn't about that tall, about that long, and it would run when you come in the house and hide under the couch. And when you'd sit on the couch, it would literally come out from under that little, little curtain on the front of the couch and nip your tendons on your heel and just nip you like that, biting. And that's the imagery here. When you, when you get this wrong, we start doing that to one another. We, we bite at one another. We nip at one another. And then the nipping becomes devouring. And then he warns them all because the back and forth starts. Then he warns them all, be careful that you're not consumed by one another. And it will. It will. And see, this is in the context of him pushing back against those who were introducing now law-keeping into the family of grace where there was freedom in Christ and Christ had the priority. This is, the, this is what he's saying in that context. So there must be a real danger of that. He says to them, rather, I say to you, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the lust of the flesh or the desire of the flesh. I love his explanation here. For the flesh, do you get this? Read this. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. The Spirit says, do this. The flesh says, no, I don't want to do that. And the Spirit sets his desire against the flesh. The flesh says, let's do this. And the Spirit says, no, I will not do that. 
They set their desire against one another. And he goes on to say, for they are in opposition to one another. They are opposed. The flesh and the spirit, they are opposed. So that, this was striking to me, they're, they're in opposition to one another so that you can't do the thing you please. Think about that for a minute. If I'm walking in the flesh and I'm a Christian and I'm walking in the flesh and acting according to the flesh and carnal in a way, then the Holy Spirit with me was in me, they're in opposition with that. And the Holy Spirit won't let me do what I please. And vice versa, if you're the Christian and you're walking by the Spirit and trying to walk by the Spirit, then the flesh remaining in you is in opposition to that and the Spirit is leading you and the flesh is raising up its ugly head all the time saying, no, 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 we're not doing that. They're in opposition to one another. And, and so you can't do what you please. You can't do what pleases me in one way or the other. That's the dynamic involved there. And boy, I can say amen to that. I mean, as a Christian who has the dwelling in spirit, uh, the indwelling spirit, when my flesh crops up, there's, a, there's, a, there's an inclination or a memory of an inclination where I used to follow that impulse all the time, freely, without any opposition. I just satisfied my flesh. But because the Spirit of God dwells in me, he's in opposition with that. And the Spirit says, no, you can't do that. And there's this little battle that goes on inside. My flesh wants to do it. And the Spirit says, but you can't do it. I didn't have that battle when I wasn't a Christian. So I think he's talking here about warning the Christian. The Christian that by bringing in law and by cloaking uh, malice with law, co-mean with, with grace, you are, you are bringing, uh, bringing those two things to bear against one another, the spirit and the flesh, and they're in opposition to one another, and, and they, neither one will let you do what the other one wants you to do. You, won't, you can't please yourself as a Christian or in, this, in, in that environment as a Christian or as an unbeliever. You just can't do that. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Set free to be free, led by the Spirit, certainly instructed by the law in terms of God's righteous and holy character, helpful in the sense that it describes God for us and it draws our heart to to Christ and to grace whereby that transformation may happen in me and I begin to live a more holy life. But in no way is that a means of my justification and really not even a means even though it may be an instrument of my sanctification. You who are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And it gives us this not, not comprehensive, but overview of the deeds of the flesh. These are things the flesh produce. He says they are evident. Immorality. If, you, if you're living in immorality, that's not of the Spirit. It's not a, that's not a work of the Spirit. That is a work of the flesh. If you're living in impurity or with sensuality or idolatry or sorcery or enmity or hostility, if there is strife and jealousy and outburst of anger, disputes and dissensions and factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, all these things, he says, are representative of works of the flesh, which, which strikes me, how do, you, how do you get there? I mean, we're talking about freedom here. How did you go from 
You are free to be free to this warning. Be careful with your freedom because it can be distorted and twisted in such a way that it brings the flesh and the spirit into opposition and the flesh starts producing bad things. It really it sounds really close to me about biting and devouring. That, that seems consistent with things like Outbursts of anger and disputes and jealousies and strifes and dissensions and factions and envying and jealousy and all these things. That seems those are like the biting things and the devouring things. And then in verse 22, in fact, verse 21, he says, I've warned you, have warned you, and will warn you again here that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he says, the fruit of the Spirit. I've always been struck, you've heard me say this if you've been here very long when I cite this verse, but it doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. It says the fruit. Uh, so I hear people sometimes go through this list as though they are plural and they get, do a little self-examination. Okay, do I have love? Do I have joy? Do I have pace? Do I have patience and so forth? And they'll say, well, I'm pretty good in this area, but I could do some help in this area. And they, they interpret this as though it's the fruits of the Spirit. I'm struck that he says, no, it's the fruit of the Spirit. This is, this is the fruit. You could almost say it without, without pausing. The fruit of the Spirit, singular, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of that, that's the fruit. That's not the fruits, that is the fruit. You, if you got patience, then there ought to be long-suffering, there ought to be self-control, there ought to be goodness, there ought to be kindness and patience, love and joy. All these things ought to be complementary and including in the fruit of the Spirit because the Spirit's bearing these things, not the flesh. In fact, whenever I use that passage and I think through my, my actions or my thoughts in any situation, I begin to think... Are these manifesting the fruit of the Spirit? I kind of go through this list in my mind, and, and it's very easy in that moment to determine, no, 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 it is not. What I'm feeling right now, what I'm thinking right now, is not a fruit of the Spirit. It is a fruit of the flesh. And it ought, it's a call to me not to manufacture this in my life, but to recognize that I'm cut myself off from the source of its production in my life. And that's a big point. You, you don't manufacture, the Christian doesn't manufacture love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control out of his own strength. That's the same as being circumcised. That's saying, I'm saved by grace, but, but I'll take over from here and work on these things. You're commingling grace. Now you're cutting yourself off from the source that produces these things. He says here it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, not the fruit of Larry or the fruit of anybody else. It's the Holy Spirit's fruit, and it reveals itself as love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It reveals itself in that way, but it is the fruit of the Spirit. And if you set about trying to produce the fruit by your own strength, you're going to fail or you're going to become a hypocrite or you're going to become self-righteous according to how much success you may think you have. That's, that, that's legalism. <laughs> 
I'll, I'll produce these in my life. He says against these things, these fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That, comes, that pointed me back to the union that I'm talking about. And so what do we do with that fleshly man that is so prone to satisfy himself? What do we do with him? Well, he says we crucify him with Christ. In our union with Christ, you've heard me say positionally we are crucified with Christ. Experientially, the, the reality of that union manifests itself in our life gradually and incrementally as we grow in Christ and mature in Christ. We become more and more like Christ. What is true in position and reality manifests itself as true in experience as we grow in Christ's likeness. But the old man must be crucified with Christ because you can't put him to death. You can't. You can, you, can, you can bind him under law. You can make him wear a yoke. You can conform him to societal regulations. You can get him in the right denomination or under the right theological umbrella. But you can't kill him. You can't crucify him. He can only die and be crucified in union with Christ. Which is why this passage tied me back to those two Sundays that I'm preaching about our union with Christ. And notice in verse 26, if I'm misinterpreting verse 15, then you'd have to explain to me what he means by verse 26 when he's speaking to these believers who are, who are subject to fall to this temptation to commingle circumcision, i.e. law, into their relationship of grace with Christ. He says to them, let us not then become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. That's what he's, that, I think he's addressing that because if we don't live free in freedom and they succumb to the pressure they were getting from the Judaizers, this would be the end result. They would become challenging and boastful and envying of one another because they would always be categorizing themselves as who's the most advanced Who's the most Christian? Who's the most religious? Who's the most holy? That's exactly where they would have gone. Turn with me now, because this is where my mind went, to John chapter 15. By the way, before you turn there, look in Ephesians 1. When I, that chapter I've been preaching from. Ephesians 1.13, in him, Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, which sealed us, where? In Christ. So, so that's what led my mind to John chapter 15. Now listen to what Jesus says. I I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bear fruits, bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. 
You were already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now listen, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. You can't do it. So, so union with Christ, sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit, which is a promise of our eternal, the ultimate outcome of it all, our inheritance, sealed in Christ. That means abiding now I'm abiding in Christ and in the abiding in Christ the fruit gets produced what fruit fruit of the spirit love joy peace gentleness kindness the fruit of the spirit is that which is born of the spirit sealing us in Christ who is the vine in whom our roots are sunk and the sustenance of the vine is flowing through the life of the branch and the branch bears its fruit. Who's, whose is the fruit? Yours? The branch? Does the branch boast? Look at all the fruit I've borne. No, the branch simply abides. And the glory of the branch is the, is, the, is the vine to which it's attached and what it produces at the, at the outreaches of the branches. The glory of the fruit belongs to the vine, which is Christ. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Union. Union. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What are you producing today? Would you say, good fruit? I conform my behavior, come to church regularly, do my devotions every morning, spend a certain amount of time in prayer. All these are fruit. Are you producing those? It means nothing to Christ if it is not a production of Christ. You can do those things and they may be instrumental and even a means to Christ producing true fruit that belongs to him in your life. In fact, I, I insist that they are instruments of God doing that. But that is not the fruit in and of itself. That is, the, that is the instrument by which you are reminded of your rootedness in Christ and of him as the vine. And as your outward life manifests what's flowing through Christ into your life, that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what sets the Christian apart. That's, that keeps the Christian from becoming bitter and wearing a yoke and moving into, into law-keeping as a means of acceptance with God. And, a, and, and you can bind yourself to that way to where if you're violating the law, you're, destruct, you're destroyed if you didn't do what you thought you ought to do. Yeah, if the law identifies sin and I sin, I, I understand that sin is sin because it goes against the holy character of God Almighty. And I feel guilt for that sin, but I am grounded and rooted in Christ. I am crucified with Christ. That sinful man has been crucified with Christ. He has received for that man the judgment due his sin. anyone does not abide in me, verse 6, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatsoever you wish, and it will be done for you. And then verse 8, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, as he's already described that, and so be my disciple. And this is why I said at the beginning, providence strikes me because 
I wasn't looking at Galatians until I preached two sermons on our union with Christ. And as I began to meditate on all that flows from this union with Christ, and then I came to Galatians and was reading in Galatians, and I understood and began to see that in the context, the fruit of the Spirit and freedom. I began to see that in the context of my union with Christ. And I'll tell you what that does for me. It magnifies the cross. It magnifies the cross. It doesn't diminish it. It doesn't take the tension away from it. It drives the believer back to the cross as the source and fountain of his very Christian life and his joy and his and his right apprehension of Bible truth and bringing it to bear in his life. He is not a defeated, yoke-bearing Christian. He is a free man. He is a free man. And if that translates to you as less holy, you're mistakenly, you don't understand what freedom means. He is free. He is free by grace. Christ has fulfilled the law for him. Christ is his rest. He is free now in Christ, in grace. Abide in the vine and let the vine produce in you fruit that that lends itself to the glory of God. There is a a huge liberty in that. And and that's what, to me, that's one of the things that comes home to me most deeply about a relationship with Christ. It is not confining. It is not it is not smothering. It is not it is not holding you under something. It is not restricting you. It is setting you free not to be bound to the impulses of the flesh, but to be led by the Spirit of God. Grounded, rooted in Christ, secure eternally and and abiding there in Christ and allowing Christ to produce a fruit and and a life that glorifies him. I'm suspicious of any doctrine or any, any philosophy that moves me away from the centrality of Christ and the cross. I'm really suspicious of it. Because if, that, if, you, if you dim my eyes in the least to grace and to mercy, if you, if you diminish my view of that in the very least, you know what the, you know what the alternative is left for me? Me. My works. I better get busy. I better do this much reading today. I better go to church. I better do this. I better, I better do that because I'm seeing very little of grace and mercy and the glory of the cross. And I, I, and I am by nature falling back upon my ability to please God or to, to, to live in such a way that I would be acceptable to God. That is a co-mingling of grace and works. And if you get there, you will turn into that bitterness that he's talking about. You'll, you'll begin to produce fruits of the flesh. And every one of us is subject to that because we are all not yet sanctified fully. We have not yet been glorified. So I appreciate you being here tonight. And I, I hope you see where I'm putting those two, two, these two things together. Uh, I, I'll finish with verse 11. Jesus, having said that in John 15, he says, These things I have spoken to you, why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I, I remember reading this years ago and I thought to myself, Jesus doesn't want me to have a counterfeit joy. 
I, I want my joy in you and that joy to be full. My problem in my life and maybe yours in your life is that we're always looking for a counterfeit joy, some substitute, because, because in order for the, to experience the joy of Christ, it requires too much of us. It requires not depending on ourselves. It requires a complete, utter dependency upon Christ and the work of Christ upon the cross. It, does, it requires a recognition of the dying of self and the living unto Christ. It, it, it requires too much of us. And so we substitute, it seems, for a lesser joy. And that's a sad thing when Christ says, no, I, I want you to know my joy. Just for a minute there as you're standing, you ever think about the joy of the son? Uh, he knows the father. I mean, an eternal intimacy and fellowship with the father and spirit. Complete harmony, complete fullness of joy, no sins entered in. The father, the son enjoying the father's fellowship, knowing him intimately. What joy it must produce in the heart of Christ. And Jesus is saying to the believer, I want my joy to be in you. Man, I, I don't know about you, but I don't want to settle for a lesser joy. I, I really don't. And if it's lesser, then I'm going to be depressed because it's lesser, and it'll go away really quick, knowing the joy of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the truth that Paul brings to bear in Galatians, Lord, these are new Christians perhaps and Gentile Christians who never even imagined that they would need a circumcision, but then there were those who came into their midst who perhaps even with good intentions pressed upon them something more. And oh, I love how Paul pushes back against the more. Nothing more is needed than Christ. And Father, forgive us to where we might, and even in our own minds, be drawn to think that there's something more I can add. There is nothing. And Father, forgive us for even supposing that there is, since in doing so we diminish the value of Christ himself. Jesus is enough. In this passage, it says it was for freedom that he set us free. And as Paul says to these Galatians, I think he would say to us today, today as well in our generation, why would you take again a bondage of slavery, a yoke of slavery? Father, help us to live as free men and free women, those who have been set free in Jesus Christ, living by faith in Christ and in intimacy with him, his, his fruit being produced in our lives to your glory. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. Thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for our fellowship, Lord. Thank you for uh, your love for us. And Lord, thank you that you are creating in us a Christ-like love for one another as well. So we thank you for those great blessings. And we pray that we would be set apart and distinguished as your disciples by the way we love one another with your love. We thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen.